Well, we're going to be in our study uh, this morning uh, that's from our upcoming study on Wednesday night. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26 for today. Isaiah 26. And we have more Bible prophecy. Uh, How important is that? Bible prophecy. You know, I'll tell you, um, Bible prophecy, some people, I I get this all the time because it's not hip right now to talk about Bible prophecy in churches. Uh, It's too divisive, too many people, uh, too too much controversy. I have pastor friends who say, Brett, you know, the Bible prophecy is, it's just too controversial. But I, I just believe that you got to teach the Bible. See, the people that are talking about Bible prophecy, end times, eschatology is what it's called. They're the pastors that are going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because you, if you teach the Bible, you have to cover it all, man. And, and one fourth of the Bible is Bible prophecy. Oh, you guys are just obsessed with Bible prophecy. Uh, and we just like to talk about current things that are happening now. People say that. Um, I, I came across this a few years ago and it just kind of cracked me up. Um, the top 10 ways to know if you're obsessed with Bible prophecy. Number 10, you use the left behind books for devotional reading. <laughs> uh, or number nine, you get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet sound. <laughs> you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy when you believe the, the term church fathers refers to Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. <laughs> uh, you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy when you uh, believe the original Greek and Hebrew text includes Schofield's notes. <laughs> you Bible prophecy guys know that one. Schofield, the old Schofield Bible had some awesome Bible prophecy notes in there. And then they made the new Schofield and they took all those out because they were too controversial and stuff like that. So if you can find an old Schofield, uh, it's really helpful in Bible prophecy stuff. Uh, but, but a lot of people act like that's the holy grail of Bibles. But uh, it's number six, you can name more signs of the times than you can of commandments. <laughs> number five, you refuse, to, uh, re, to, you refuse a taxed refund check because the amount comes to $666. You know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy when barcode scanners make you nervous. You also know you're obsessed if, number three, you talk your church into adding the 60s pop song up, up and away as a Christian hymn. (laughs) Um, Number two, you never buy green bananas. Uh, And then finally, uh, number one, you always uh, leave the top down on your convertible in case of the rapture. That's when you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy. Um, hey, the rapture of the church is something that is talked about in the Bible. And, and uh, did you know, by the way, that 55% of Americans believe in the rapture, according to those polled? Um, but just what is the rapture about? And where is it found in the Bible? Um, you know, the rapture is, is an important notion. And, and here in Isaiah 26, I see a, a little message is sort of encrypted in here. Now you say bread encrypted the Bible. Yeah. When it comes to prophecy, isn't it interesting that God sort of tucks away truth in Bible prophecy that's sort of meant to be time release. You know, like that medicine that you get that's time release capsules. That's what prophecy is like. Remember when Daniel received the prophecies from God and it says that Daniel was astonished and didn't understand the words that he received, but he wrote them down and put them in a book. And then Daniel was told by God, even though Daniel didn't understand, he says, I have no idea what I just wrote and what it means. And God says, that's okay, you're not gonna understand, but seal up the words of this book until the time of the end. In other words, the closer we get to the end, the more we'll understand the book of Daniel. And I think we're there. 
The book of Daniel makes perfect sense now. We see the way things unfolded throughout history to match exactly what Daniel, so much so that people like to reject Daniel as authentic because it's so exacting about the way the world history unfolded, even to this point, people say it's a forgery. Somebody had to write it much later than Daniel, which is provably wrong. But all that to say, Daniel didn't understand it. It was cryptic, encrypted. It was, it was um, sort of time release. Now, while Daniel was told to seal up the words of the book, Revelation of John, given to John by Jesus, there in the book of Revelation, it says at the end of that book, do not seal up the words of this book. And I believe Bible prophecy is one of those disciplines as we study the Bible, we, sh- we should know more and more as we get closer to the day of the Lord, we should start to see this is what that's talking about. And it starts to make more and more sense. By the way, there's all kinds of different views on the way Bible prophecy is gonna come down. And, and there's good Christian people that have dif- dis- di- you know, disagreements, but it's an in-house discussion. It's an in-house disagreement and good people have different views. One of the things that I would argue though is that not understanding the nature of Bible prophecy, how it's gonna unfold as time gets closer to the end. Some people hold a, a prophetic worldview that's very, very old. And they say, our view of Bible prophecy is the oldest, you know, and that everything's figurative, all this stuff's already happened. And the problem with that view is it's not in line with what the Bible says about Bible prophecy that we'll know as the time gets closer to the end. That's why we're supposed to be watching and ready and waiting. But a lot of those churches are saying, yeah, we're just, we just you know, prophecy, prophecy, whatever. Uh, we're just gonna talk about the here and now. But that doesn't do what Jesus told us to do, to watch and be ready for him when he comes. And, and I think that's what we're doing here by looking at the Bible cover to cover, book by book. You have to cover this stuff. Now, in Isaiah, where we are in our text, chapters 24 through 27 is called the little apocalypse by some Bible scholars. And the reason is in Isaiah 24 through 27, it kind of covers all the day of the Lord stuff from the rapture of the church to the tribulation period to the destruction of the world, the the millennial kingdom, all of these themes are talked about. In chapter 24, we see the destruction of the world. If you wanna have an encouraging chapter, Isaiah 24, we looked at that last week. But 25, 26, 27, all deals with end times themes. And tucked away in this is a, a mention of the Lord pouring out his wrath, his indignation, on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. We know that's coming. It's a, it's a time called the, the, the tribulation, seven-year period where God, his indignation, his wrath is gonna be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And so here in Isaiah 26, there's a couple little verses. We'll look at all the chapter on Wednesday night, but I wanna just show you a couple verses that are quite intriguing to me and brings up a theme that I'd love for you guys to know about. So let's take a look, Isaiah chapter 26. It says in verse 20, Isaiah 26, 20. There it says, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. This is talking about when the Lord pours out his his wrath on the inhabitants of the earth. 
that should be a red flag. We should say, that's gonna be the tribulation. That's, that's what the time of tribulation is, the time of the wrath of the lamb. The wrath of God is what it's called, Jacob's trouble, because it's gonna include the Jews. You know, Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. During the tribulation, they'll see Jesus as the Messiah. But who are these people that are told here in verse 20, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors uh, about thee, hide thyself as it were for a moment while the indignation be overpassed. Is this a coronavirus scripture, Pastor Brett? Because this sounds like what we've been doing. Maybe this has come to fulfillment here in, in 2020 where we've gone, gone into our houses and shut our doors around us because of the wrath of God through the coronavirus. I've actually heard people talk about that, but that's not what's happening. And this is not what this verse is talking about. Even though we are locked down in our houses, unless you're uh, rioting or protesting, you, you can get into multitudes, but I won't go into that necessarily today. But, but we've been locking down like dutiful Oregonians, you know, um, but that's not what this is talking about. This is actually talking about something related to the end times, because that's what all of this section of the scripture is talking about. So what is this about? Well, I believe this is a message that deals with the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church. Well, how do you see that? Well, I'll tell you, but you got to understand there's a little bit of a background. First of all, what is the rapture? The rapture is what Jesus spoke about when he said that there's a generation that's coming that will not see death. Mark it down in your notes, but Mark chapter 13, verse 30, or Matthew 24, verse 32. Both of these sections of the scripture is Jesus talking about the, 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 there's a generation that will not see death and it's the generation that sees the fig tree blossom. That's that encrypted sort of language that you read about in the Bible. The fig tree, I believe, is a representation of Israel. When you see Israel, the nation, the fig tree, when it blossoms, then that generation will not see death. In other words, they're gonna see something else other than death. Instead of dying, what's gonna happen? Well, I believe they're gonna be raptured, taken up. Um, uh, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, it says this, behold, I tell you a mystery. Again, this is a mysterious thing in the Bible. Um, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. This should be a scripture we put on our nursery wall. We should paint this one. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. <laughs> that's a good nursery verse, but that's not what it's talking about either. It's saying we shall not all die, but we shall be changed, transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. It's saying that some people are not gonna die in a moment at the sound of a trumpet, there's gonna be this rising up of the dead, but also of those that are alive. They'll be raised up and changed. Their bodies will be changed. What's that gonna be about? Well, that's the rapture of the church. But the rapture is not in the Bible. You're making that up. You're telling people a lie. People say this, pastors say this, those that talk about the rapture, it's not even in the Bible. That's not really being honest. Um, just like the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but any real church believes in the Trinity, of course. Um, uh, but it's not there as the word, or missionary is not a word that's in the uh, ancient text of the Bible. But the word rapture is also not in your Bible necessarily, unless you have a Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. 
Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. Keep your finger here in Isaiah 26, but let's flip over to 1 Thessalonians. And I wanna show you what I would call the main mention uh, of, the, of the, the idea of the rapture in the Bible. Um, so you have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. It's right in that area of your New Testament. But there in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, it's where we read about this, the rapture of the church. And chapter four and five of Thessalonians deals with the last days. And it says here in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 16, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God. Now pause for a second. Notice the elements here. There's gonna be a voice that's sounding. Uh, what's the voice gonna say? I'll tell you here in a minute but there's a voice that's gonna say something and, and it's gonna descend from heaven with a shout. So the voice is gonna shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Now there's a bunch of different trumps in the Bible. There's the trump of angels. There's the trump of, of, um, uh, of God here in this text. Um, there's Donald Trump. Which trump are we talking about? Well, it's the trump of God that's gonna blow. Um, and there's, don't be confused. Some people get confused on this about when the rapture is gonna happen because of this message here with the trump of God. And then you go to the book of Revelation and you see this angel blowing a trumpet in the middle or toward the end of the tribulation. So some people see the rapture is gonna happen in the middle or the end, but they're different trumps. The trump of God is different than the trump of the angel. I hope you see that. So the rapture is gonna happen when the trump of God is blown and verse 16 at the end it says, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. People are like, what's that all about? Here's the thing, the, the language here is important to kind of catch, but it's, it's um, present and active. The idea is the dead in Christ are rising first. The dead in Christ shall rise first. This is some people try to you know, make the argument that people are asleep in the grave. But the idea is people who die today, they're with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when you die, if you died today, you'd be with the Lord. And the dead in Christ are rising first. And that's what would happen to you. Um, but when the rapture happens, the dead in Christ, who's already been rising first, then it says, we which are alive, verse 17, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. The rapture of the church should be a comfort to know that the Lord's gonna meet us. And not only the Lord, but those who, the dead in Christ who are rising first, they're gonna be with the Lord and they'll come with them and we'll meet them in the air together. The Lord, the rapture of the church and we'll ever be with the Lord from that day forward. Man, that's gonna be a great time. Well, Brett, I didn't see the word rapture. Well, mark the words in verse 17 where it says caught up then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. The Greek word there is harpazo, which means to be caught up in the air. Um, the Latin Vulgate translation was rapture. That's the word raptured, be raptured. So call it what you want. Now, the people that don't believe in the rapture, they say, oh, Pastor Brett and those churches talk about a secret rapture. Now, I've never called it a secret rapture. It's not secret. I'm telling you about it right now. I'm trying to announce it to as many people as I possibly can. The Bible's been talking about this rapture for years. Call it whatever you want. There's coming a time when the Lord's gonna take his church and catch them up into the air and meet him with those who have been uh, passed away and died first and are in heaven with the Lord now. We'll meet them together in the air 
and forever will be with them from that day forward. That's why it's such a great comfort. Comfort one another with these words. So the word rapture is not in the Bible if you have a King James or a Greek translation, but if you have the Latin, that's when the rapture started being talked about more is during those times when the, the word was rapture in that particular translation. I hope you're with me on that. But we'll call it the rapture because that's what it's been being called for a long, long time, hundreds of years. We've been calling it rapture, caught up to meet the Lord. So the passage here, it's full of wonderful hope and promise. I love this. Now in, um, in, in Thessalonians 4, 17, it says, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together um, with them and in the clouds and meet the Lord. Mark the word meet there. Because the word meet actually is um, more than just meet, like, uh, hello, nice to meet you. The word meet is, is the Greek word for meet. And it carries the idea of meeting a royal person, it, uh, a person of great importance. This is because when the Lord calls us up and the trumpet sounds and we meet the king of kings, that's what's gonna be happening. The word meet there is of great importance there. In, we miss that in the English translation. Now, this is... Could this be what Jesus is talking about there in Matthew 24, verses 40 and 42, when it says, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, but there's gonna be people that'll just be taken. Um, no man knows the day or the hour. Let me explain something about the coming of the Lord. Um, so there is a difference between the rapture of the church and the coming of Christ. I hope you see that. Um, that's important to the discussion of the rapture of the church. The rapture is technically not a coming of the Lord because he's not gonna come to the earth. We're gonna meet him in the air. The, the first coming is when Christ came, was born in Bethlehem, lying in a manger. The second coming is when he comes in Revelation chapter 19 with 10,000s of his saints. That's us. See, we're already with him because of the rapture. Then the second coming is gonna happen where he comes and touches ground on the earth and that's the battle of Armageddon. That's when Christ comes and rules and reigns uh, on the earth and that's the millennial kingdom comes into gear where Christ rules and reigns. That's the second coming. Not the rapture of the church. That's not the coming of Christ. So there is a difference and we'll kind of point that out as we move along here. But who is it that knows when the Lord is gonna come? Uh, who is it that knows that? As it turns out, Jesus tells us uh, there in Matthew 24 and other places that even he, it says, no man knows the day nor the hour of his return, nor the son of man, that Jesus doesn't even know, but it's the father in heaven who knows. That's, that's important and I'll tell you why. Because of the picture that we see in the Bible about meeting the Lord. Now, Let's go to John 14 real quick. Uh, this is a classic passage that, that many of you are familiar with. John chapter 14, uh, in verse one, uh, boy, these are troubling times that we're living in. And I love that Jesus says in John 14, one, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now listen, in my father's house are many mansions. Now, the word mansion there, I love the old hymns, you know, I've got a mansion, you know, and all that stuff, that's great. But the word mansion is not really a great translation of the word. When you look at the Greek word here, I think they were trying to say the Lord's preparing a beautiful, wonderful place, which he is. It's just not a mansion. Um, the word is dwelling place or even sort of like a room. In my father's house are many rooms. Um, 
And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, why did Jesus go to prepare a, a dwelling place or a, a, a chamber, a room for you? He says in verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive unto you myself that where I am, there you may be also. And then of course they said, well, we don't know the way. How do we know that? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father that has many dwelling places, you know, that I'm preparing. Nobody comes to my father's house, but by me. So this is what Jesus was teaching us in, in John chapter 14. But I believe there's something here uh, in the Bible that is so cool. Do you remember that you and I are called the bride of Christ? That's the church. Now don't be confused. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people are not called the bride of Christ. They're not even called the bride of God. They're called the wife of God. And so there's, um, there's some interesting passages in the Old Testament about how the Jews have sort of been adulterous toward their, their husband, God, if you would. And, but the Lord still loves them and he's gonna take them back. God is not done with the Jews. And uh, don't, don't fall for that. Some people believe that God's done with the Jews. Bad, bad teaching. Here's the thing. You and I, as the New Testament church, we're called the bride of Christ. And I believe a lot of this reference we miss because we don't understand the way that the Jewish wedding took place. And this is where all this starts to come together quite beautifully. And I wanna tell you the story of the, of the Jewish wedding ceremony because it's pretty involved. Um, I love the different cultures and the way, you know, Americans, we kind of do a quick 20 minute service uh, and then we uh, have a nice reception, maybe an hour or two and then call it a day. Uh, the Russian people in our church and the Ukrainians, I love their weddings. They go on long, all day, a lot of them. And, but the good news is they have wonderful food and it's a great time. Uh, the Russian and Ukrainian weddings in our church, I love that. Um, but every culture, the Jews had it very different as well. They make the Russian wedding look short because the Jewish wedding lasted kind of for seven days, but technically even longer than that. Let me explain. So uh, a man and a woman would often be prearranged to be married, predestined. I'm gonna use some language here purposefully to kind of connect some dots, hopefully quick, quickly. But uh, a, long, a, a person would be chosen long before they were ever involved in the decision-making process. Uh, there was a foreknowledge of, of the father uh, of who would be selected to be the bride for his son. Does that make sense? And so they would be young kids, but there would come a day when they would be a, of age to be married where the bridegroom, uh, the one who was sort of chosen, he would go to the bride's house and make it official. And he would come and, and it would be sort of a legal binding that they would be married. Now what's different than our weddings and the Jewish wedding is that wouldn't be where they'd have the wedding ceremony. That wouldn't be where they would uh, have romance and uh, you know intimacy. None of that would happen yet. But Technically, they would be married at that point. There would be a covenant made between that man and that woman, but that's all that was happening. It would legally, do you remember that Joseph and Mary were not married technically yet, but they were betrothed? But do you remember when Joseph thought to put her away with divorce? Well, they weren't even married yet. Why would they divorce? Because the Jewish wedding. They would be betrothed legally and be bound together before they ever were technically married. That was the betrothal period, if you would. And so that would be in place. Well, why would they have that period? Here's why. The bridegroom would go and make that official. He'd visit the, the bride's house where the bride lived and he would make it official and, and it would be signed, sealed and delivered. 
Um, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, came to our house, if you would, this earth, and he died on the cross and, and made a covenant relationship, the new covenant with the church of Jesus Christ. And it became official at that point, but we're still called the bridegroom and the bride, not, not officially married yet, but it is, it is signed, sealed, and delivered. Well, what did the bridegroom do? After he made it official, he would then leave the bride's house and go, now let me use some language here to connect some dots. He would go to prepare a place for her, his bride. His bride. And he would go to his father's house. This is what he would do. You see, in the Middle East, this is something also we don't do, but in the Middle East, to this day, you see it all over the place. It's really cool. Um, they, they would, you know, they kind of stack generation on generation in housing. Uh, what do you mean, Brett? Well, it's like this. Uh, the, the father's house would be like this. And you'll notice in the Middle East, a lot of the houses have rebar sticking up out of the roof. And it looks unfinished. If you go to the country of Jordan, I've been to Jordan like nine times. Um, and it's amazing how many houses are. And I remember asking, what's the deal with all these houses with rebar? Why don't they put a roof on these houses? And the answer is the father and the mother would live there. They'd have kids and they'd prepare that for the son who would marry a girl. And then he would build her house on top of the parents' house where the rebar's sticking out. And then they would build that house and they'd leave rebar sticking out of the top of their house for their kids. And generation upon generation, they'd, they'd build their house. So this is what the Bible's referring to. You know, the, 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 the bridegroom would then leave the house of the girl, go and say, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you. And he would prepare and build and make that upper part of the chamber for his family, his life, his marriage. But there would be only one thing that would kick their marriage into gear. The father of the bridegroom would look at the preparation, the, what the groom was doing, and there would come a day where the father would say, okay, you are ready, son, to bring your bride home and to be officially married. So then, then everything would go, it would light up. In that town, they would blow the shofar trumpet, doo, 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 and the town would go, who's getting married? And they'd realize, and, and news would travel fast. The, 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 the father has approved. He, he says it's time. So the, the, the bridegroom would leave the father's house again and he would go and the, 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 the bridesmaids and the news would travel across town and they'd tell the bride, he's coming, he's coming for you. So she would get all gussied up and ready to roll. And then she would, as soon as he came to the house, she would emerge from the house and meet him outside in the front. And then there would be a parade as they would go with all the bridesmaids and bridegrooms and the wedding party, and they would march their way back to the father's house. Okay, are you with me? So they'd get to the father's house, and by that time, all the friends and family and relatives, big time party. <laughs> Maybe not like that. Uh, but you know, the Jews would have their, their big wedding party, food and everything. But what would the bride be doing? The bride would be then tucked away in the bride chamber. The, the, the room that was prepared, the housing that was prepared for her, the, the family would be in the rest of the house, the friends would be there, but the bridegroom and the bride would be in their room, and this is a little embarrassing, but they would be sort of consummating the marriage. They would be in there having romance quietly by themselves in the side place that the bridegroom prepared for her. Um, and the, the family would be partying down for how long? Seven days, the party would go, feasting, having a great time. And then on the seventh day, the bridegroom and the bride would emerge from the bride chamber 
and enter into the party. There'd just be a huge celebration as that marriage now was signed, sealed, and delivered. And then there would just be a great celebration after that, the last day of the feast, the seven-day feast. And it would be official. All that to say, that was the Jewish wedding. So that when Jesus uses this language, the Jews hearing this of that time, they knew exactly what he was talking about. There would be sort of a reference to this idea that that the church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus says, listen, you know, I'm going to my father's house and I'm gonna bring you with me that where I am, you may live with me also. But I go to prepare a place for you. I don't know the time, only the father in heaven knows the time. And it's when the father says it's time, that's when the trumpet will sound. That's when I will come and meet you and take you to my, the chamber that I've prepared for you, the house, the dwelling place that I've prepared for my bride. Do you think Jesus is preparing a cool place for his bride? You know, he prepared this place where we live, the earth. It's pretty cool. But he did that in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. The bride chamber that he's been preparing, he went 2,000 years ago and said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. So what happens? Man, the rapture of the church is gonna happen when the, the, the bridegroom's father says, it's time. That's God, God the Father. And then our bridegroom, Jesus, the son, will come and meet his church. That's the rapture of the church. And then he's gonna take us to his place that he's prepared for us. And there will be a seven-year Honeymoon in heaven, if you would, the marriage feast of the lamb, as it's called in the Bible. And we'll celebrate with our bridegroom for those seven years. Now, meanwhile, back on earth, what's gonna be happening? While we're in heaven, the rapture of the church happens, we're in heaven, seven years on earth, not seven days, that's the marriage feast, but in the the tribulation story, it's gonna be seven years where the Lord, the Father, is gonna pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world while we're with the Lord. Then we, after the seven years, we are gonna return with Christ, just like the bride and the bridegroom would appear at the end of the seven-day feast and they'd become part of the whole thing. That's what will happen at the end of the seven-year period. We return with Christ. The bride of Christ and Jesus returns in, in Revelation 19 when it says, uh, he returns with ten thousands of his saints. The idea of ten thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands, millions and millions of people will return with Christ. That's the bride of Christ. The imagery is beautiful. The picture is certain that we are the bride of Christ, and He's got a plan and a purpose of how that's going to all unfold. So you say, okay, Brett, great, um, interesting, but does that prove the rapture? You see, when you put all these pieces together, the rapture of the church is talked about in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians. It's it's referred to by Jesus himself when he talks about there's a generation that will not see death. The generation that sees the fig tree, Israel blossom. It's all talked about that. But I believe this passage, let's go back to Isaiah. This passage in Isaiah 26 is hinting at that very event. And there's some language that fits that narrative. Check it out. Of course, the context of Isaiah 24 through 27 is the end times, the last days, the millennial kingdom, the tribulation. But here, let's read our text again. Come, my people. Now pause for a second. Come. What is the word that's gonna happen? When the rapture of the church, it says there's gonna be a voice with a shout and the sound of a trumpet. What's the shout gonna be? Well, this, this is where the book of Revelation tells us the answer to that. If you remember, and, and this is important, the book of Revelation is, 
is spoken of in chapter one. He gives us the divine outline of what the book of Revelation is all about. Let me read to you from Revelation 1:19. It says, write the things which, number one, thou hast seen, past, and write the things which are present, and write, write the things which shall be hereafter. Those are the three points. And so he does that. Chapter one of Revelation is the things which have been in the past. And it's a beautiful description of Jesus Christ, the things which are, have been. And then he writes the things which are the church age, Revelation two and three. We are living currently in the church age. And, and man, when you do a study of the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation two and three, it's, it's talking not only about those seven churches, but a panoramic view of all of church history is defined in Revelations in, uh, uh, chapter two and three. And if you missed that study, go and listen to it. We've done studies on the churches of Revelation two and three. But then he says, the third part of it is write the things which shall be hereafter. And the Greek word there is metatauta, a word that we don't really have, but after these things, this is what's gonna happen. It's a chronological word that really emphasizes a timeline. So write the things which are, have been Jesus, the things which are the church age. What's gonna happen after the church age, metatauta? Well, you go past chapter two and three of Revelation and you get into chapter four and something radical happens. After the church age, then it says in chapter four, verse one, after this, that's the first word of chapter four, verse one of Revelation, and the word is metatauta. So he's doing the third part of the outline, the things which shall be hereafter, after the church age, I looked, John says, and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be metatauta hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, the throne was, I was, the, the, a throne was set in heaven and one who sat upon the throne. And chapter four and five goes and explains heaven. And guess what? Who do you see in heaven in chapter four and five? The church, the, 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 um, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ is in chapter four and five. And then after you see the church in heaven, then chapter six through 19 of Revelation is all about the tribulation period. And see, the problem with the other views that believe the tribulation is gonna happen and then the rapture or the middle of the tribulation, that's when we're gonna be raptured. You have to rearrange the book of Revelation. One of the reasons I'm a pre-tribber and believe the rapture of the church is gonna happen before the tribulation is because just read the book of Revelation easily in the, in the order that it lies. You don't have to you know, you know, mix it all up to try to figure it out and, and do crazy stuff. The easiest way to re read the book of Revelation is pre-trib rapture. The church is taken up to be with the Lord in heaven. And, and then the tribulation comes uh, while the church is in heaven. It makes perfect sense. Why would the church, the bride of Christ, be in the wrath when God's pouring out his wrath? That's not what a bridegroom does. He pulls her out and we're gonna be in the, in the uh, bride chamber, if you would, with the Lord during the seven years of tribulation. Then we come back and rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And the word that's gonna be uh, spoken is come, come up. That's what it says here in chapter four of Revelation. After this, I heard the trumpet and the voice which said, come up. Going back to Isaiah 26, verse 20, come my people, enter into thy chambers. That's the bride chamber that, that the Lord's saying, come up and come into my bride chamber. And, and this is John 14, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. It's fitting perfectly. And then it says, and shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself. The Lord's gonna hide his church in the bride chamber. Meanwhile, 
It says, hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Indignation, that word, if you mark it, it means God's wrath and judgment. That's what indignation is. Verse 21 defines it very clearly. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place. And the word the Lord there, notice it's in small caps, the word Lord. When, when you see in your Bible, the word Lord in small capital letters, it means Yahweh or Jehovah. And this is the God, the Father. We're with the bridegroom in heaven, in the bride chamber, but the Lord, Jehovah, it says he's gonna, he's gonna come out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. This is gonna be when there's death and wrath poured out upon the earth. We're not gonna be here for that. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4 said, you guys comfort yourselves together with these words. We're gonna be taken up as the bride of Christ, put in a safe place that the Lord has prepared for us. Meanwhile, the earth is gonna be in a horrible situation. You think the last couple months have been bad of 2020 with the pandemic, with the rioting, with the horrible things and injustice and all this terrible stuff that's been happening, the economy faltering, all this stuff that people are freaked out. This is child's play compared to what's actually gonna happen in the book of Revelation, what we're seeing right now. I'm so glad we're not gonna be here. Now, the question is, why the encrypted nature and why is, this, why is there a variable? Nobody knows the day or the hour. Wouldn't it be nice of the Lord to say, hey, this is when it's coming? Well, think about this. When the bridegroom of the Jewish wedding was coming, what do you think the bride was doing? Man, she had to be ready at, for that season of betrothal, which that's the season we're in. We're betrothed to the Lord to be married. We're the bride of Christ. And what the Lord wants of us is to be watching and ready and waiting. What if the Jewish bride says, yeah, whatever, I don't think the bridegroom's coming today. So she's there sitting on the couch, hasn't taken a shower for three months, and she's eating cherry bonbons and cheeseburgers, and, and uh, she's just there with her hair up in color, curlers and just kind of sitting around the house in her robe and her big fuzzy slippers and just kind of, you know, and the bride shows up, and, and she's not ready. That'd be embarrassing. You see, the thing is, we're the bride of Christ and we need to be watching. This is what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 24 when he said, man, watch, be sober, be like the, 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 the faithful servant who's watching and ready for my return. Don't be like the wicked servants. Ah, the Lord delays his coming. And that person, he's gonna have his part with the people that are weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't want any part of that. So part of this is so you and I can be watching, ready, and waiting. And it, there's a healthy tension there. There's a healthy tension for us as Christians to say, you know what? Christ could be coming for his bride today. And if I believe the rapture of the church could happen today, I'm not gonna be partying down and living in sin and doing all kinds of ugly things with my life. I'm gonna be wanting to be ready for the bride of, to be the bride of Christ and to be a beautiful bride. And, and um, 1 John chapter three actually uh, tells us about this, this effect that takes place on the believers. 1 John three, verses two and three says, beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And it says, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope of Christ's return, the apostle John tells us in 1 John 3 here, that when we see him, we're gonna be like him. What a glorious day that's gonna be. 
and will be taken. But it says, but we who have this hope of his return, it purifies us. There's a purifying effect on the believer who's saying the Lord could come today. You see, having the worldview that the rapture of the church is imminent changes your life. That's why I think it's important. See, some people say, well, I don't study Bible prophecy. It's all gonna come out however God wants it to come out, whatever. That's not a healthy attitude. The attitude God over and over in his word says, I want you watching and ready and vigilant and sober. And I wanna present a church that's without spot or wrinkle. That's what Jesus says. Don't be lackadaisical when it comes to Bible prophecy. Don't put up, you know, one fourth of the Bible. Don't, don't chalk off one fourth of the Bible and say, yeah, whatever. We need to be students of this and we need to be watching and ready. And boy, I'll tell you, when I get depressed about what's happening around me, I can quickly remember, oh, but the Lord's coming is soon. And I believe the rapture of the church. There's evidence that we're living in the seasons and the times where that really could happen in our lifetime. It could happen this week. And I wouldn't be surprised one bit. Um, now, there's one thing. You gotta make sure you're part of the bride of Christ because there's the people who are bride of Christ and there's people who are not. And if you're not part of that, then, then man, I wouldn't wanna be in that place where you're left because the bride gets to go to the bride chamber and be a part of the wedding. The earth, however, everybody who's left behind, they're gonna be going through what Isaiah says here is God pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And you must be born again, Jesus said. You gotta be saved. You gotta be forgiven of your sins. The Lord does not marry someone who's still in their sins, but he wants to wash you and purify you and make you his bride. In fact, the Bible tells us the Lord would that none should perish, but everyone would eventually come to repentance and acceptance of Christ. So that's the key in all this. You gotta be saved. How, how do you become a Christian? There's so much of a misunderstanding of what a Christian is. Some people think a Christian is a person who's going to church. Uh, some of you think a Christian is someone who votes for Donald Trump or a Christian is someone who thinks they're better than everybody else. There's all these weird views about what a Christian is. But a Christian, if you wanna know what a real Christian is, ask a fundamentalist Christian. And here's what a Christian is. It's a person who recognizes they're a sinner and they repent of their sins. That doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means they realize they've lived sinful lives and they fall short and they, there's not even a good thing that lies within them. And you just repent and say, I changed my mind about that. I don't wanna live that life. I wanna turn and, and repent and walk toward Christ and live a life for Christ. That's repentance. So you repent. And then if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus dealt with your sins, you see, you're still in your sins unless you allow Jesus to take your sins and put them on the cross. Jesus is God who came in the flesh, died on the cross for the sins of the world, your sins. And he bore the punishment that you deserved. The wrath that's gonna happen during the tribulation, it's either gonna be poured out on people during the tribulation or it will have been poured out on Christ in your place. The Christian says, I don't wanna be a part of this wrath. I wanna I want accept the, the punishment Jesus took for me on my behalf. And it's your free pass. The Lord takes your sin and it lifts, he lifts it off your shoulders and you are no longer under that burden of sin. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you and like me. That's an amazing truth that God loves you and me so much that he would say, if you want it, I'll take the penalty for you. And, and a Christian is someone who says, yep, I repent, I'm a sinner and I accept 
the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Because that's the only name under heaven by which men can be saved, the Bible says. No one is righteous, not even one person, but praise be the Lord, the gift of God is eternal life through those who will accept and believe the work of Jesus, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the grave, proving he was who he claimed to be. You see, I, I don't know about you guys, some of you men out there are like, I don't know about being a bride, um, but it's a picture that is so perfect. We've got this loving God who's preparing a place. He, he wants us to take us in and Jesus loves you and, and is preparing a place for you. If you want, you can go and be and accept that beautiful, glorious invitation. Otherwise, you're still in your sin and you're on your own. And that's gonna look ugly. It's gonna be brutal. Um, repent of your sins, be saved. That's the advice I'd give you. And for you Christians, man, we get to look forward to the rapture of the church. I hope you live with that expectation, the imminence of his taking up of his bride. That day's coming. When's it coming? When the father says, okay, it's time. And then the son, Jesus, will, will blow the trumpet and say, come up here and we'll go up to meet him in the air and he'll take us to the marriage feast of the lamb where we'll be for seven years. And meanwhile, tribulation on the earth. And then we come back to this earth with him when, we, when he returns, the second coming and will rule and reign with Christ as his wife, if you would, from that point on. That's the story of the Bible, and that's what we're reading about here in Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. Would you bow your heads, please, with me? Lord, how thankful we are for your word. It's so rich, the uh, illustrations and connections, all the dots as we see them, as we read your Bible, Lord, it just gives us so much to think about. But Lord, just that simplicity of the gospel, what a, what a powerful message it is. And I pray that everyone who's listening to this sermon today will know that they know uh, if they're saved or not. Lord, your word says we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not to take it as a light thing or just joke around about it. But Lord, heaven and hell is real. And, and I pray that everyone would take that threat seriously, that we're all sinners headed for destruction. But Lord, how thankful we are that you give us the gift of eternal life. And I would pray, Lord, today that if there's anyone who's yet to accept or believe, that today would be the day where they give their life, their heart to you. If you would, just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And if you're a Christian, would you be uh, just in an attitude of prayer? Because I believe there might be some who are still in their unsaved condition. You're not betrothed yet to the bridegroom, Jesus. And man, the Lord is, for some reason, he's calling you right now. He's got you listening to this teaching because I believe the Lord is giving you this loving invitation right now. And the question is, what are you gonna do about Jesus? Are you gonna repent of your sins and be saved or are you gonna stay stuck in your sins? The answer is what Romans 10, verse nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead, it says, you will be saved. That confession with the mouth, it, it just, it brings that salvation because he did all the work. You don't deserve it, nor did I. We didn't do anything to earn it, but it's a gift of God. And that's why it's called grace, undeserved, unearned favor God wants to give to you. It's there for the taking. If that's you, would you pray a prayer of confession right now with me? I'm just gonna pray those, those words, but they're not just words. It's gotta come from your heart. And the Lord will hear this as you pray from your heart, this confession of faith. Would you pray this? Say, dear Father, 
I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave. And I believe that I'm forgiven. Thank you for your love. Thank you for saving me. And now help me to walk with you in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for these who have just confessed you. I pray that they would, Lord, just sense something in their heart, their spirit, that just is that of great forgiveness and your love. Flood their soul, Lord, with just your love and your kindness, that they would know that what they've just done is legit. Not that they did it, but you did it, Lord. Confirm it, I pray, within their walk, within their life, I pray. And for all of us, Lord, give us that expectation and the hope of your return where you're going to make all these evils turn around for good. You're going to set all the wrongs right, but we get to be in heaven with you. We look forward to that. Give us that hope and comforting words, Lord, that we've read today about the rapture of the church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.